it's just like uh, you know the kind of like anxiety of preparing for the trip yeah yeah that's totally understandable yeah like it's a mixed feeling of anxiety and excitement yeah do, 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 do. Don't worry don't. about a lot of things. That's Absolutely. This is, time, this is the time that I envy kids. They only have anything. I know. <laughs> Remember when and we you, were younger? Like, we never had to think about anything when we were traveling. Yeah. <laughs> All we thought about was having fun and that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. I mean, I will always want to be a kid. Yeah. Yeah, but when Absolute you're a kid, you want to grow up. I hated being possible. a kid. That's right. That's right. I hated being a kid. I felt like Bloody when I was hell. a kid, I felt like, I don't know if you felt this. I, I'm guessing you did, but I remember when I felt like, when I was a kid, um, a lot of my um, sort of um, despair came from the fact of feeling like I had no power, especially as the youngest uh, kid. Yeah, I felt like I had absolutely cute. no say. Yeah. I think I get that a lot from my youngest child. It's like, oh, why can't I decide to do this? Or why yeah, yeah, exactly. Has to be yep. your decision. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yep. being a parent, I've tried to kind of shift that mentality of giving the kids more freedom, like compared to our parents. Yeah. In choosing what they want to do. So. I'm Jessie. Hi, this is Helen. And we're Asian Bitches Down Under. Um, the Oscars, let's just drop jump right into it okay yeah so oscars um well i was i watched it on my phone like like on (laughs) channel i think it was seven plus or something yeah seven yeah um while i was washing my car Mm -hmm. and how um, do you do that oh (laughs) i see your car yeah well i had my headphones on oh and i guess i just listened to it yeah yeah yeah. listened to it um, and then obviously I stopped for the major speeches um, uh-huh. and very, it was just incredibly emotional. Um, I was, I was sobbing um, at, at the major award winners, um, uh-huh. meaning like, you know, Kiyue Huan and uh, Michelle Yao. Um, I cried when everything everywhere uh, won best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, in hindsight, everyone was saying, well, you know, um, once Jamie Lee Curtis had won Best Supporting Actress, um, you we knew what we all knew that you know Michelle Yao was going to win Best Definitely Actress. Going to yeah, and yeah. I was like, yeah, I guess I I I didn't really think that because I I don't really know the intricacies and the politics of how the Oscars work, but yeah, I guess like mm-hmm. it made sense that you know if a supporting actress in a film won, it was probably going to be no doubt that, you know, Michelle Yao would win for her role in the same movie. But, I mean, I would I didn't know that. Um, I was still very, very, very anxious and nervous that she would miss out to Kate Blanchett. I know. I, I wonder if that's like an Asian sort of feeling, that we're not confident enough that we always wonder if you know, a representative well, I was... of Asians is going to win. But on, on, on the subjects of choosing, I think at the end of the credit, oh, not at the end, before the credit comes up at the end of the show, they have a slide um, of like a, a PowerPoint or some sort of things on the screen saying that how they pick their winners. I right. think Yes, I did read yeah. that. I think they have like saying that what sort of members they have and it's like a fair game or something like that. I think, I don't know, I, n- I don't remember seeing that in the past years, yeah. Well, I think that's just like um, public information that they've, mm, How they know. selected. The yeah, person. yeah, like yeah. every category is selected by um, industry members. So mm-hmm. uh, the Best Actor Awards are selected by actors, Best Cinematography Awards are selected by cinematographers, directors, yeah. so on and so forth. By the experts themselves. But going so. back to the the sort of lack of confidence, I guess. I was always brought up to believe that it's dangerous to be confident and that it's arrogant yeah. and, yeah. Uh, you know, like... Yeah, that's true. Kind of don't push your luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's very contradictive because at the same time, I, I mean, we're, we're moving into the phase that Asians need to really step up and make sounds and make us, make ourselves seen uh is that like a part of the what's that syndrome called um imposter yeah imposter syndrome like i feel that all the time really do you yeah and you get 
you get a lot of artists who are moving towards this, you know, successful point. They will say that, oh, just fake it until you make it. You know, like、mm. what our dad always say. Yes, yes, don't take it, John. Best quote ever. I have literally.、Yeah. Uh, I mean, and also, if you don't speak Taiwanese, God take it, John. If you don't understand that, it's actually not a direct translation of.、Um, What did you say again? What what was your、uh, quote? Fake it until you make it. Yeah,、But、yeah, that's not really like that. Yeah, it's not. What, what by our dad's meaning, he's more like if you da- dare to take. Yeah, it, yeah, it's you will get it. You'll yeah, get it. You yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's more like a dare. Take the、yeah. plunge if you take the risk. You will be rewarded. rewarded. Yeah, you'll be rewarded. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the, the, like、it. another、Something、way of saying it is like the the more daring mouse. Will go. Will the more daring mouse、um, or the more daring animal will、um, will receive or grab or succeed in grabbing the、mm-hmm. cheese or whatever? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah it's um. And I have always lived my life in that、um, sense. I've always thought of that、um, quote. My dad has repeated that since I was a kid, and it's always in the back of my mind.、Um, and I think that's why whenever I've wanted whatever I've wanted in my life and. My my kind of ambitions, and I guess I'm just thinking about specifically just my professional career. I guess my paid employment、um, in the last thirty or so years, it's changed like a hundred thousand times.、Mm. Um, and yet, I've realised、um, I've always been able to, at some degree, succeed in at least stepping towards it, whatever I, it is I wanted, to a very kind of efficient and quick、um, degree. It's because I've always had that 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 adage that my dad、mm-hmm. taught us, you know, "God take it, yeah," so、mm-hmm. thoroughly like、um, entrenched in my mind.、Mm-hmm. And、um, going back to, I mean, when when you said when you mentioned imposter syndrome, I kind of rolled my eyes, not、mm-hmm. to yeah, you know, demean you, <laughs> just because just because I'm so I'm so over it. It's it、mm-hmm. seems like such a 2005 kind of、um, rhetoric or like mentality that I have never like. I, I'm sympathetic to those who struggle with it, and it is women. It is a very gendered phenomena. Like、mm. it's just a, that's a fact. Um, uh, but I、um, and I have like seen enough people and heard enough women who have said, you know, I don't experience it because X Y Z. Like Gia Tolentino says, she has never experienced it、um, for whatever reason.、Um, Margaret Zhang, the ed- editor in chief of、um, Vogue China,、uh, who you know is famous for being just like an absolute yeah, genius. Yeah. I think she's a genius. Honestly, she's the most underrated genius ever.、Um, I guess I just don't really, I, I don't. I'm not. A, I think she's a genius, but I don't understand her world because I'm not into fashion. But、mm-hmm. I do know objectively she's a genius. So she、um, recently had an article written about her in the New York Times style section, where she says she's never experienced. Imposter syndrome, either, and that she doesn't mind being, she doesn't actually mind being underestimated because it gives her the opportunity to actually prove people wrong. You know,、mm-hmm. um, I myself,、um, I think I've told you this in person before several times, Helen, but I myself have never experienced imposter syndrome because from a very young age I started going to a lot of public talks. So what I mean by public、yes. talks is like、um, yeah. I'd go to like、um, book launches and public lectures and like public forums where you know big issues are discussed.、Um, it could be like council meetings or、um, it could be、uh, politicians speaking or it could be artistic people or you know academics, right? And what I noticed very through throughout like years of going to this is that often these people who are on stage are never very articulate or smart when they're put on the spot. Like they're never really that articulate or、um, actually very、um, smart. Yeah, there's no other way of putting it. And I was like, wow, like these people have give, are like so so easily given the platform to speak, and yet they're never very impressive. And so once the the moment. I became someone of a public figure. I'm not. I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm not a famous public figure. But like, just any time I present myself in public,、um, I don't feel like I'm an imposter because I know that I'm completely just as like smart or like.、Mm-hmm. Um, you have that confidence. Well, that I'm not inadequate in any way compared to these、mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I guess it take it's very different for for you and me because I never 
I hardly got get involved with those things and I've grown up with a lot of social anxieties. So I always had in the back of my mind, I keep thinking to myself, oh, am I doing well enough? And, you know, um, as an eldest child of the family, I guess, I don't know if, you know, older Asian immigrant family have a similar experience being the oldest, eldest child, eldest daughter of the family, you always been kind of undermined of what you do, whatever, like, I feel like I did a lot for our parents when we first arrived in Australia, but I never really hear any praise from our parents. And that's not saying that it's a wrong thing to do. It's just a different style of parenting, obviously, that you couldn't fault them for that because um, that's how they grew up as well. And I still, I feel like I still have a lot, a long way to go to build up that confidence myself. And also I'm just lazy. I think I just plan, I'm just plain lazy. Like I don't want to, <laughs> I'm just, so I have the lack of motivation to be socially interacted with other people. That's, yeah, well, that's, that's I guess that's thing. a... Yeah, that's yeah. My, my personal issue. That's why yeah. I'm doing my podcast where I just have to interact with you, Jess. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of interacting, um, I do want to reply uh, and, and, and the question of from our listeners a couple of weeks ago in regarding to uh, is- an issue that we were discussing. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I shared a story of how I had tradie, a male tradie came over to our house and um, just sorting out stuff. I can't remember. What was it just, you know, hanging up the ceiling fan or something? And then he had his daughter with him. And this was this was a couple of years ago when my child was a lot more younger. And I just, you know, because he has his young da- daughter with him and he was just asking that, oh, can my daughter be here with me for, you know, the next hour or so because I had no one else to take care of her. And I said, yeah, perfectly fine. And uh, my child and her, the, his daughter were just playing out in the front yard and I supervised them. And this listener asked, oh, um, yeah, I will totally do the same thing as you if this, if something similar came, um, came up uh, with me. And But what if... The role is reverse, you know, if um, the stay home person was a father and the tradie was a female, um, would you be comfortable or, or sim- on a similar gist, I think the listener was asking that, would you be comfortable having a male person who is a father or not to look after your child or supervise for, you know, for a period of time, like. But I don't understand the premise because um, that tradie wasn't asking you to look after his child. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't. So, but I uh, voluntarily, yeah. you know, he he has to have someone to look after the child because she was like three or four. She was, she was at the age of, yeah, she can do something herself, but you still have someone to supervise over. Yeah, that. I know. But wasn't he always in the room with you? No, he was in another room. He was doing the ceiling fan in one of the bedrooms. And right. obviously so, you don't want the kids to be close to him while he's doing his work, you know, some dangerous tours or he's hanging up the ceiling fan. So he, the child needs to be somewhere else. But so I think... You, so you were watching the child? Yeah, I was watching the child because, you know, my well, kid what, that day so, and they were just playing... Oh, I, I didn't him. understand the premise of that. So if something happened to that child, wouldn't he, able to, wouldn't he be able to sue you? Oh, that's the thing. I'd never really thought about that. But mm, okay. um, that's a bit risky. Yeah, it was a bit risky, but I really never really thought about that because, you know. How I just m- thought the child was in the room with you guys together. Oh, okay. Because otherwise, yeah, well, we're in how the same you, house. We're in how the same would you house. entrust just a perfect yeah. stranger to look after your child, even if it was for like five minutes? Oh, okay. I'm really I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust anyone with my child. Any stranger with my child, if I just go into their house and go, uh-huh. oh, look after my three-year-old. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess he's comfort. He's comfortable enough that he's just in the very proc- – he's in the proximity of his to his child. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Are, and kind of like, you know, come and check every 15 minutes or so. And it wasn't a huge job. It, it took like less than an hour. Yeah, so he probably didn't expect anything would go wrong. But coming back to the listener's, qu- listener's question, I believe she was asking that, oh, 
what what if the role is reversed i don't think it's uh what she was asking is about if the situation with the tradie i i'm guessing that she was asking that will we being mothers or women feel uh do we have enough trust if someone else is a father or a dad to supervise our own children when we're away or when we're doing something else i'm guessing would you like to answer that question um honestly i still have my reservations about males other than my own partners or my own direct relatives to look after my kids it's 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 the reality i think that's why we still haven't seen enough male child care workers and we don't have enough um also because it's like grossly underpaid yes that's that's one thing but i i just don't feel like unfortunately that um historically what you've seen enough the stories of men taking care of kids i don't feel confident mm. yeah i don't feel confident for you know men that i'm not familiar with to look after my kids mm. but having said that it was so it also depends on the people as well because um just earlier this year our friend came back from overseas and they live really close to us and my daughter went to visit them because uh, this family friend has a daughter who is the same age as uh my youngest child but this time when they came back only the dad came back with the daughter the mom was mm. sick overseas so she you know she couldn't make it with them and my daughter actually spent a couple of times just you know play dates across to their place uh in the afternoon and i vaguely remember that i mentioned it to our sister and she was questioning that oh do you feel safe that it's the only father there the dad was still working from home you know he's working and i say that oh yeah i don't think there's any problem because yeah i've met the you know i've met the parents i know the parents yeah and they're just very close to our place yeah Mm -hmm. and if anything happens and i think my daughter's really open about things as well if she's not uncomfortable she will voice Mm -hmm. out and i have to Mm -hmm. i think at the time being the parent there will be a time that you really need to let go and let your kids sort out things it doesn't mean that you don't protect them at all but Mm. there'll be things that they will need to learn how to sort it out themselves and just at that moment i think i feel really i I have confidence with because both parents you know and the family met and we've um had a couple of gatherings before and it really depends people yeah yeah well we i think um, when when i was growing up you know we never were allowed sleepovers and, um, and my mother day. explicitly, my mother, well, we were allowed playdates. Yeah, I you wasn't didn't, Well, you didn't have any friends, Helen. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. You had friends who smoked and that's why mum didn't like your friends. Um, Helen was part of the goth crowd, the Asian cool goth crowd <laughs> in high school. Anyway, yeah, um, I was allowed playdates. Me and my other sister were allowed playdates um, for a while, for a while, but we were never allowed uh, sleepovers and my mum and uh we were explicitly told by um our, my mum that it's because she didn't want us to get like touched by the fathers she mm. always just said i've heard too many stories of kids going to sleepovers and then the young women young girls getting like somehow molested by the fathers or the brothers Oh, oh, the brothers, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I think, um, I mean, I, I, I'm just saying this is the world my mum grew up in in Taiwan in the seventies and eighties. So, you know, I'm not going to deny her fear or her reality, Mm. you know, she had her reasons and, you know, you and I, we both turned out fine. Well, you know, Helen's still messed up in the head because she needs (laughs) therapy. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm still, I'll always be messed up. But anyway, um, that is the product of immigrant children. Um, But um, yeah, I, I, I can't help but feel also a bit like suspicious of men you don't really know. Like you can never be too trusting. I'll never trust anyone outside of. I I don't think for me to trust a a a straight male. who I'm not incredibly, incredibly close with, 
I just, I, I, I'm always going to be suspicious because, you know, you and I, we are feminists. We're meaning we read a lot about the reality of what it means to be a woman. And the reality is um, there are fucked up men out there, you know? Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I mentioned to you maybe on this pod the other week um, when I was like going on, like hanging out with my sister's kid who's like eight, uh, sorry, five, six, seven. He's in, he's in year one. He's in year one. And um, we took him to a market, like a, uh, like a inner west, inner, inner west uh, market, um, which takes place at a school, a public school. And um, I took him to the bathroom and the whole time I was just waiting outside the boys' bathroom and regretting the fact that I didn't just take him with me to the girls' bathroom so I could have a look at, like, so I could just at least stand outside the stall and make sure he's safe. Mm-hmm. But instead, I just um, because my sister said it was fine for him to go on his own, mm. and so I just like the whole five minutes. I think he was doing a shit. He was doing a poo. <laughs> yeah. Later, he came out and told me he was doing a poo. But uh, the whole time, um, all the men that went into the bathroom after this little boy, I was just like, he looks like a pedophile. He looks like a pedophile. Yeah. He, yeah. Nobody doesn't. No man yeah, does hard. not look like we a pedophile. Have, we have that mentality of growing up of suspecting. Yeah, Every man is a danger. Uh, yeah, exactly. We, we've been and, raised like that, and like I don't like I don't think it's us being new. Like I I don't know. Maybe maybe some listeners can yeah. write in and tell us yeah. we're being like absolutely insane. But like I'd rather be absolutely insane than have something like than than have something that would change a, a yeah, young it, person's it life for a second. You know? So yeah. It's just yeah. It's yeah. And that and this is maybe. And this kind of, and it makes me think about what kind of parent I might be. Um, and I don't want to be an anxious parent. I really don't. I oh really don't God, want to be an anxious yeah. parent. You know, I, it's just I'm an, I'm a, such an anxious parent that and, I'm yeah. starting to grow the last few years. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, but like when we think about like you and I, we were raised by the same father, and mm-hmm. um, he was always like um, extremely protective, like mm-hmm. as in like um, almost yeah. to the point of like unbearableness and um he was always like he always justified himself by saying um it's because you know the if i lose if i um shed my um vigilance for one second that could be the one second where something happens to you or something happens to one of my kids you know and so like this kind of like on always on the kind of lookout Oh, if something happens, you're yeah. ruining your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I kind <laughs> no, of... not only your life, the whole family's life will be ruined. So <laughs> we grew up in that kind of mentality. Yeah. So tell us that we're not in living in fear all the time. <laughs> yeah. So depressing. Yeah. Hi there. If you're new to our show, thanks for tuning in into our program and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, we're forever grateful for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. It has really helped this podcast to gain a great exposure as our mission is to center the perspectives of people who look like us who are marginalized historically to the sideline of conversation. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google or Spotify and leave a rating and review. And of course, as a small podcast program, we rely on listeners' support to continue this work. Please do check out our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation in order for us to continue to advocate the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Well, moving on to yeah, <laughs> moving on to less depressing things. Um, I'm going to run through my quick um, cultural consumptions for this week, and I'm very excited to share with you all guys, with you guys because um, it's a great bunch of stuff. Um, I might start with my book of the week, um, and it is. Let's just let that ambulance drive by. Oh, it just stopped suddenly. Yeah. So um, not in your front door. No, no. So one of my favourite writers in the last couple of years is a woman called Jenny O'Dell. I'm holding up her new book called Saving Time here um, in front of me. I think I believe it comes out um, at the end of March. 
Um, and it is called, like I said, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. Now, Jenny O'Dell, I'm sure you guys have heard of, is the best-selling author of How to Do Nothing, which came out in 2020, uh, about um, having a relationship outside of work and the internet, basically, and being, like, more aware and attentive of um, where you place your attention. Um, it was a great book. Everyone loved it. Um, Obama uh, put it in his top 10 books of 2020. Um, this book, Jenny O'Dell, returns to, to this idea of like being aware and, you know, um, separating your life outside of the internet. Um, but specifically, this book is about um, our relationship to time. And mm -hmm. I'm halfway through. So I believe at the end chapters, she talks about the way in which time and our relationship to it um, affects our uh, sort of relationship to uh, our pursuit of stopping climate change, basically. And mm -hmm. I haven't reached that part yet, but the first few chapters is really um, about the way in which um, our, our, our notion of time is very different um, according to sort of different forces of historical and political um, identities that we have mm -hmm. and so like for instance she's like um often we're asked to take out take time out to do xyz um but in doing that um say you're prioritizing your own time and you're forcing enforcing a sense of time onto another one another person um perhaps another person with a on a sort of lower socioeconomic um status who doesn't have the agency um or the individual agency to determine the hours of their lives you know what i mean like um you might say oh i'm going to like take out two hours this week um instead of doing housework mm. instead of cleaning my kitchen i'm going to take two hours this week to go play tennis with my friends um oh but in God, doing so <laughs> but in doing so um um you might hire um ah, a cleaner and mm. that cleaner has no agency um, over her time or less agency to determine what to do with her time. You know, you're basically throwing um, a labour onto someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and the book in kind of starts off kind of philosophically, but also historically, like um, Jenny O'Dell is a, like a, just an, an the, the most remarkable writer in the way that she melds history with social um, sociology and mixes them together in a way to present um, the, a version of how it is we live and how it is we came to the idea of time and the clock. You know, the, the idea of the 12-hour day, 24-hour uh, day was only invented like a few hundred years ago, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. and, and, and the way in which the 24-hour time and the way in which um, we have, you know, you know that book, um, How to Give a Fuck About, How to Give a Fuck About um, Nothing or something? You know that book you really like, the Mark Mason one, Manson. Oh, I don't really like it. I just subtle art. Oh, yeah, the subtle, subtle art. art don't give a, give don't give a fuck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the books like that, or like the four hour. I think um, Tim Ferriss wrote um, the Four Hour Week. Um, mm -hmm. This idea of like um, uh, sort of segregating your time according to you know your most productive hours, or like um, outsourcing the things you don't want to do. All of those things are based on this idea of Taylorism from the sky, from something, something Taylor from hundreds, you know, a hundred years ago, a philosopher who kind of came up with this, these ideas that we now capitalize on mm -hmm. and, you know, self-help sections of bookstores are now, you know, a billion dollar industry. It's just like, um, it's amazing to read something that is so rooted in history and sociology, but also like uh, Jenny O'Dell is half Asian. I think mm -hmm. she's like half Hawaiian or something. And so like, um, I don't know, I just, I, like, like I always say, I'm always, I'm always more interested to read, um, read the perspective from someone who aligns themselves closer to my own identity. Mm, and unfortunately, by, just by me saying that, people will, you know, <laughs> delegitimize me. Whereas like if you're a white guy and you say that, you know, um, Schopenhauer or Nietzsche is, you know, the god that you look up to. No one's going to blink. No one's going to bat an eye because, yeah. yeah, because you know you're the default. You're the yeah. white guy. You mm. can love any white guy without being delegitimized. Whereas if I say, you know, I love 
Jenny O'Dell or Gia Tolentino or like any other Asian writer, I'm like, oh, she's an Asian. So of course, yeah, yeah I'm, my tastes will be racialized just because, you know, I am because racialized. Our values are aligned to those writers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But um, what's your idea yeah. of time? Do you think? Um, I okay. I I'm not a cap. I I don't think like a lawyer in that sense. Like you know, lawyers have to cap their times and all that. Yes. Yeah. Um. Thank God I'm not in a corporate job where I have to do that. Mm-hmm. So um I I I have interviewed in my job as a journalist. I have interviewed a couple of CEOs um and asked them how they make it work, especially when uh, most of the CEOs I've interviewed are women mm-hmm. and white women and um often i've heard them saying like oh i like compartmentalize my day and so i'll like do 20 minutes sections of my day i'll do 20 minutes of yoga and then 20 minutes of replying to emails and then 20 minutes of e- uh, assigning jobs to my employees and then 20 minutes of meetings like oh um, God, their lives so seem so yeah and i was like I, there was a time in my life where i was like oh that's how shit gets done oh that's how successful people operate but but back then, um, I guess my idea of success was, you know, someone who ran a company. These days, um, there's nothing less appealing to me than the lives that they lead. You know, I don't want to compartmentalize my life, mm-hmm. and I, I I don't I don't um, I'm not in pursuit of a life where I'm where I, I feel like um, my time requires me to segregate my life in that way. You know, mm-hmm. um, thankfully I'm. Um, I, I see my life as someone who's more of a creative type, and so I get to read a book because I'm um, actually I'm so incredibly fortunate that that's part of my job. I'm a book reviewer, and um, I mm. I thought about once actually um, timing myself and seeing like how long it takes me to read a book, and then how long it takes me to um, write the review, so I can see how much I get paid um, mm. by the hour. But yeah. like I've never been able to do that just because. Um, I don't want to compartmentalize myself in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to see my time hour by hour as a monetized identity. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a very that's a very good idea. I think it's very hard to compartmentize creative work because yeah. one's value on creativity is is very very different. You know, some people can be pay. I don't know. Some artists might be able to be pay for thousands of dollars in one talk whereas mm. other artists can probably be paid by less than hundred dollars you know for for a piece of work that they do yeah it's it's very hard to determine on that isn't it um on the subjects of cultural consumption do you have any other ones that you want to mention before i move on to mine yeah um i just wanted to say um so my friends and i are doing um uh, Meg Ryan Mondays. Mm-hmm. So we watch yes. a Meg Ryan movie every Monday. Uh, this week it was Courage on a Fire, 1996 with Denzel Washington. Have you seen it, Helen? I haven't, but I thought that you were going to watch Kate and Leopold. Yeah, I know. I did see Helen the previous day and told her I w- we were going to watch Kate and Leopold. Um, I kind of vetoed that only because I've already seen Kate and Leopold and I didn't w- feel like a rewatch. Yeah. Um, and Courage on a Fire was the only movie that none of us had seen. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of forgotten i'd say okay. forgotten mm-hmm. unless you are really into denzel or meg mm-hmm. um but it's a 1996 film it's um it's 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 an interesting film i think it's underrated it's a great film um it follows basically red denzel washington trying to like he's made a mistake at the beginning of the film and he tries to um repair his guilt by actually looking into another case he is assigned where something iffy has happened and this case is um involves Kate uh, Meg Ryan and Meg Ryan and Denzel Washington have zero scenes together interestingly oh okay yeah they had don't because their storylines don't um align okay yeah i won't spoil what happens but anyway mm-hmm. it's a great film can't recommend it enough denzel washington is a superstar uh, i don't think we have anything anyone like denzel working today in hollywood no can you think of anyone who has the denzel washington kind of vibes for you today i feel like chadwick boseman could probably become yeah. Washington, but unfortunately yeah. passed away but and mm. also maybe denzel washington's son son Tom washington yeah. Yeah, but I think he he is a hard. He will be a very difficult standing. He's so dignified. Yeah, 
I think it, because it also it's because that he always played play serious roles. Yeah, I would have loved him yeah. to be a, like a leading man, a yeah. rom com leading man. I think he could have pulled off. Yeah, well, finally, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the ensemble theater in Kirribilli, um has a new show season show playing. It's called a Reinhard, Rhinestone Rex and Miss Monica. It's um, Georgie Parker playing. Oh, Georgie Parker. Yeah. yeah, I saw her somewhere on the so, news. She's coming. Yeah. So yeah. she um, um, is reviving a play um, mm. with her co-star uh, that they did a play by David Williamson that was um, written 10 year, 13 years ago, so 2010. Um, I was interested in this one because um, she plays a violinist, a former violinist. Well, she oh, is still okay. a violinist who no longer can play because she's got some injury. Mm. Um and I was hoping to see some kind of violin playing in the in the play, but yeah. alas, it doesn't happen. Um, but I was surrounded. How do, like, they, how do they present that she was? Oh, she just—they talk about it. They talk oh. about it. Yeah. So the play only has two um, two uh, characters. So uh-huh. it's a rom com. It's a rom com okay. um, for older people, shall we say? Older people. Yeah. Just because um, the jokes. My friend and I um, were in our thirties, and mm-hmm. we didn't really get the jokes like oh. but, but the whole audience laughed a lot like it was uh, yeah, almost average, a continuous average demographic would be like 60 75 or oh, 75 yeah yeah it was a very old crowd um mm-hmm. but it is the ensemble theater ladies and gentlemen is the play very um, old i think do you know what like oh it's from 2010 oh 2010 okay yeah. um but the period Getting was like what? What's the what's the? Well, they can, they've revised it, so they've updated it. So the cultural cultural um, uh, touchstones, which they mentioned um, in the play, are contemporary. So they mentioned okay. the White Lotus. They mentioned books oh, that okay. were published, you know, a year or so ago. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, it's delightful. It was. I, I sat in the theatre surrounded like and and I watched this old man who looked like to be 150 years old on the on the front on the front oh. row and he was sitting and just his face was just so he was so like um he was so immersed oh, okay. in what was happening and mm-hmm. and I just I I, I actually because this is the thing with me when I go to theatre I often sometimes end up watching the really hot people on the front row. Yeah, and somehow there's always a really attractive person or a couple in the front row. It's like it's like the ticketing system knows where to place Who to people. put at the front. So yeah, in case they want Seriously. to take a picture of the audience, they yeah, can yeah, capture exactly. the most good-looking people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> always the good-looking people in the spotlight. But, yeah, um, so there was a tr- an attractive couple in the front row, but next to them there was, like, wedged between these attractive young younger people, there was this old man who was so well-dressed. Mm. Um, he kind of reminded me of uh, Mr. Franken, Mr. Fredrickson in Up. Oh, yeah. He was just so adorable. And I I left the – and, then, like, I just left the theatre thinking this is what the – what the, at the end of the day, this is what theatre should bring, like absolute joy. Mm. Yeah. And absolute, like, um, um, you know, two hours of forgetting the world exists and being mm-hmm. immersed in the story right in front of you, like literally 30 centimetres from you, you know? Mm-hmm. It was so, oh, it was just so, I, I, I was like, I just loved watching that old man. He was just so cute. He was so. You know, it's like a wordless connection with other audiences as well because you're watching the same thing. Yeah, like you I know. Tell it's from beautiful. Their, their, their yeah. yeah. I have never had a boring theatre experience ever. Oh, okay. I, lo- I love the theatre so mm. much. I think the older I get, the more I'm in love with it. I remember um, someone from years ago in my life had said that he, he was like a big film lover like me, but he said that um, he didn't like theatre because he just finds it so kind of hard to immerse himself because it's so conceited. Oh, like it's okay. so, um, it's so kind of artificial. Like it's, People okay. pretending that something's happened, happening mm. within a very physically artificial space, right? Mm. And I get it, I get it. But I just find it like there's nothing more immersive than people like acting right in front of you. I know. You know, like and it's so have... easy for me to mm. um, withhold my um, belief, whereas mm. maybe for my friend it wasn't easy for him. I see. Yeah, I think theatre play is a lot more difficult than making films and or TV series because with films you can take you can do a, diff, a numerous take if the director wants. But yeah, yeah. Theatre play, 
on the night you're up you're up you, you make mistakes you have to yeah i think yeah, yeah definitely um theater is a space where actors um their skill um, their their teeth, talents, their, what's yeah. the expression yeah they they really do they really do practice um like their true skills i guess mm -hmm. as uh, as in this, i feel yeah. like it's a better litmus test as to whether or not you're a good actor can mm -hmm. you remember your lines for instance yeah you know? i'm sure yeah. that's not the most in, like difficult trait but like to me i just think i i can't remember any lines like i think a few um, months ago um, billy carl and i my best friends we were um uh we were reenacting a scene from damages uh, a series starring glenn close and rose Byrne, for those who don't know and there's a scene where um Roseburn comes into Glenn Close's office and Glenn Close starts telling her off. And it's like a very short scene. There's maybe like 10 lines in all. And we tried to reenact it because Billy was just obsessed with the scene. And I honestly- Who did you play? I could, uh, we switched roles. Oh, okay. Roles. Yeah, yeah. Fun. Mm -hmm. But honestly, um, I could not get past like two lines. I, I know. Yeah, I just, I, I'm I, so I bad at how lines. they remember lines. I know. And then, and then I'll we'll like, probably tell you, oh, that's a basic fundamental. I know exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just I remember no, when I, I was, that. yeah, when I was playing the violin, people would be like, "How do you remember what to play without music?" And I would be like, "That is the easiest part," you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, but that is some the that is the three cultural stuff that I've consumed this week, and mm -hmm. cannot recommend uh, the the all of them enough. Um, go the ensemble theatre. Um, play that I mentioned is playing until the end of April. So if you have a hundred bucks to spare, go ahead. Cool. You will laugh yeah. or like go and watch the old people enjoy themselves. <laughs> oh, that God. is very nice. <laughs> okay. For myself, I have one recommendation this week. Uh, it is a Netflix original uh, Japanese drama called Makanai Cooking at uh, Meiko, Meiko's House. Yeah, Meiko. Um, so this is a series adapted from a popular Japanese manga and it's um, show running is the, the director Hirokazu Koroeta. Apparently that he has won some awards for his previous work uh, called Shoplifter. It's a movie about a very strange unconventional family, similar genre to Parasite where a family, they probably don't have any relationship to blood relationship to each other. The only thing that they were together is because they're all criminals. Um, so in coming back to the TV drama, Makanai tells the story of Kiyo and her best friend, Sumiri. Um, so they're two 16-year-old girls who left their home city of Aomori after seeing Meiko, which is an apprentice geisha in the street um, of Kyoto during a school trip. So it kind of prompted them to leave school um, at the age of 16 and moved to Kyoto to train to become like a mate uh, to become Meiko. Um, so the audience kind of joined them to see as they adjusted like into Meiko's Meiko house where the relationships are formed around the idea of a family unit. There are two mothers, sisters, uh, the fellow Meikos and also brothers uh, who they call uh, Aniki also that no one's actually really blood related um they're all like colleagues within the industry where they are led by their household matriarch two mothers there's a one younger mother and the older one who is the one uh the head of the house who leads all the guilds um so throughout the series that you follow that one uh Kyo, which is the girl who is not really into, not actually really into the art of dance, kind of starting to fall out from her past of becoming a Mako. And she was recruited as a cook for the house. And you see the other girl who is really into the career of uh, dance, doing the Japanese dance that uh, slowly moved upwards and been promoted into Mako. Um, the drama has a similar vibe to Midnight Diner, but it's not as dark. Um, his, it has a very bright pastel overtone, a sense of usefulness, and sometimes you feel like you're watching a cooking or a traveling show. Um, the one that with the host that goes to local markets and explore. 
so there are scenes where Kiyo, uh, the one who eventually becomes the cook for the Mako house, becomes, and you know, she goes to the market and discovering local ingredients and being amazed by the raw, raw taste of ingredients. Um, I remember that you mentioned that you, you I don't know, you, did you start watching it, Jess? Did, uh, no, I didn't. No, I haven't. I haven't seen this. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't watch series. <laughs> blanket, blanket rule. <laughs> yeah, but I, I highly recommend this one because it's so therapeutical to watch something that just kind of slow and there are storylines about how um, the young dancers want to move upwards but they're kind of confused if they want to pursue their career, you know, like like many other women out there in the world as well, that they they will step into the intersection where they want to move on towards their own career or they want to pursue a life in marriage or they want to settle down with someone. And I think that it happens more in Japan and other Asian countries because um, women in those societies often have real, very limited options and, you know, you get society kind of judge you or whatever decisions that you make and it does happen in this drama as well. On the other hand, I have read some people who had mostly Western media have criticised that this drama series lacked the detail of how the industry, uh, the geisha and also the Michaels, kind of uh, masks the exploitation of having those women serving alcohols and doing services similar to hostess with artistic yeah. performance because oftentimes that only the top Michael, which um, I think I believe they call it geiko or ge yeah, and eventually geisha, um, those ones, the top performing ones, they will eventually become more like a unapproachable by the general public. Right, right. They, yeah. are, they can only be afforded by people with wealth and very high status. Mm. And the rest of the mid-tier Michaels will still have to work in their own, like they have bars serving alcohol and entertaining guests in order to make a living. So it's an apprentice uh, system where you have to perform and also entertain the guests uh, in order to, you know, continue to live there. And But I don't know whether or not they're actually getting paid enough because it's a very old tradition, I think. Mm. Yeah, so mm. any listeners, you know, know or familiar with this culture, do let us know because I'm really fascinated. Um, you, Yeah, and we'll kind of extend our discussion in our next section. Yes, very while similar. we talk about, yeah. yeah. Anime and made cafes. Okay, so uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into some interesting discussions about the UK's um, first and only maids cafe. Yeah, in Manchester, of all places. Okay. okay, so we're back. Um, this thing called the Maid Cafe, M-A-I-D, um, it started in Japan in the a few decades ago in the 1990s, and it's all rooted around this idea of um, uh, creating a space that basically turns the virtual world of anime mm -hmm. um, into a physical space, a concrete mm -hmm. space, um, aka, aka a cafe where fans can go and uh, meet uh, women, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. who are dressed up as maids um, uh, and anime characters. Um, and this this kind of um, sensation of the maid cafe has spread to the UK recently. And I guess what I wanted to preface by saying before we launch into this conversation that a lot of what we're going to talk about is about anime. And I I don't know about you, Helen, but I don't know anything about it. I have absolutely zero knowledge. So um, what what we'll be talking about um, and the issue of these cafes, whether or not it's sexist, misogynist, as one columnist from the Guardian has said. Um, I guess I I don't really want to myself um, moralize or like assess it because I I do understand that a lot of this is about the culture of anime and mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a world and a culture that I myself am not familiar with. Mm. How about you, Helen? How are you thinking about this? Okay, so the background of this whole news is that um, in recent days that 
a cafe in Manchester, UK has opened, and it's based on the theme which is called Made Cafe, a culture coming from Japan, where、um, Jess has pretty much explained that you know the、um, waitress dressed up like maids in a very exaggerated uniform. Often they're like Lolita style with pinafore dresses and bows and cutesy makeups. So apart from taking orders and bringing food, they interact with customers who they call master or princess. I think this title, the princess, is given for to the female customers. So this has been Japan for a very long time, almost thirty years, and the origin was from what Jess said is based on the animation, and also it's based on the famous video game called Tokimeki Memoria, which is a dating simulation series by Konami. And as the marketing team of the game, they were seeking ways to interact with potential players. They had pop-up events where they had these characters come out, and you know they they had people dress up as characters, the maids and the woman, to come out and interact with the potential players. And later, it was actually transformed into a permanent cafe for the characters, being built has been building popularity in Japan. So. Um, coming back to what the Guardian's journalist was on about in her article, and I want to quote here, she said that young woman performing exaggerated submissiveness. I mean, it's kind of scream pervert and misogynistic to me.、Um, and then she goes on about that the local councillor saw the signs、uh, display outside of the cafe saying there's no touching policies and a list of rules that we will cover a little bit later.、Mm-hmm. So she she was just you know questioning, is it is it all against you know feminism and you know why being submissive? Um, personally, I am like I'm like you you know I'm not fully into animation, but you know when we were growing up we watched Sailor Moon we watched Doraemon and but is that anime? Yeah, they're anime. They're anime.、Oh, okay. Obviously,、right. you know they're Japanese cartoons and. They're now being an adult that we kind of start to pick that you know there are some strange, inappropriate stuff that we will watch. We watch、yeah. when we were younger,、um, but I don't think the Western media, especially maybe majority of white people, understand enough about Mates Cafe.、Um, when she used the word, the journalist used the word submissiveness. I don't think, I don't think they're in. Uh, I don't know how people perceive, but personally, I don't think it was submissive at all. It was all a part of show. It was、mm. all part of like a perform performing, you know. Yeah, it's a performance. Yeah. Um. So my friend has actually went to Japan in the last couple of months. I saw him share his experience. He had he t- he's like he's taken videos and photos of his experience in Maid's Cafe. And also, I've seen some television shows in Taiwan. In Taiwan, they actually had maids cafe as well.、Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that they are made,、uh, and I do believe that from my own observation, they seem harmless. The waitress、mm-hmm. do like music and dance performance, and very pretentious, like cutesy gestures, and they、mm-hmm. have to do it for the intention of the anime lovers, and they're all a bit of just a bit of fun.、Mm-hmm. Um, They have certain lines they have to say when they serve the food, like、mm-hmm. in the special magic spell, and they will do like、uh, make very cute animal sounds like meow meow or woof woof, and they will make the customer say it as well. What really? Yeah, and they will pretend to cast a spell into your meal and make it delicious. <laughs> you look up the YouTube videos. <laughs> so oh my gosh!、Yeah. Oh my gosh!、Um, So personally, for me, I think as long as they're getting paid for their job, you know, and their work condition is respectful and they're yeah, paid, like there's nothing wrong with it.、Um, and if the journalist or the city councillor want to criticize about this, what about escorts? What about、yeah. workers? You know,、mm. they, it's totally different level, obviously. But it's again, it's a service that's given from female to majority. Male client, isn't it?、Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is very gendered. I have to say that. Yeah,、definitely. it's very gendered. So I think in reality is that we need to separate the illusion of the experience of the male's maid maid's cafe and reality. It it it's almost like another hostess culture that 
come yeah. from a lot of Asian countries. Um, I mean, Japan have this hostess culture, and now they have um, male hostess as well. Yeah, yeah. Serve majority of female clientele. I want to go to that cafe. I know. I, I want to go. I want to try that. I cafe. was thinking, like, what is the equivalent for straight women in terms of like what turns us on? And mm. I was like, uh, I don't know if there's an equivalent because well, my tastes are not generic. Like, years, we're seeing like male strippers, men power. Mm. Yeah, know, but they're none of them sexy. Yeah. I don't find that yeah, you turn don't, on at all. You don't find your turn on is not like physical. So I know exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, there's nothing. Like there's there's yeah. nothing that gets me off more than hot dudes reading. <laughs> Instagram, Instagram account, <laughs> hot dudes reading. Um, there's nothing that turns me on more than a guy reading. Honestly, I don't care what you look like. Um, yeah, that's, that's your niche market. You have to oh, find yeah, yeah. somewhere in. I feel like there's no equivalent. Yeah, because I guess it used to be like men in suits, but. Now I just like mm-hmm. I run a, a thousand miles on in the opposite direction when I see a guy in a suit. There's nothing <laughs> less attractive or appealing about a guy in a suit. Um, yeah. So uh, as you know, a lot of what we're talking about is kind of relates to what uh, the book I mentioned uh, by Jenny O'Dell. This idea of like online offline spaces bleeding into each other, mm. and um, much like what she says in the book about the way in which we've created leisure now. Um, this these spaces the anime the maid cafes they're like instagram aesthetic um reality you know kind of like um made into reality Mm -hmm. and and it is interesting because i mean um we're talking about a lot of issues here we're talking about the gendered issue of like the costume and the women dressing up there's the care economy which Mm -hmm. the piece by the the uh, the journalist from the mirror had talked about um the idea of a safe space and Mm. and of course anime and what that whole genre gives to those who love it and um, it's interesting because um, there is a photo of the cafe in that mirror article where uh, there's a neon sign that says, everything we do is driven by anime, mm-hmm. which I think is really like important to note. And also what you mentioned, it's so easy for the Western media journalists to decontextualize this and, and frame this whole phenomena i guess this business this um this business it is a business at the end of the day Mm -hmm. um through the lens of what we see as like oh this is misogyny oh this is like through the lens of our western feminists ideals Mm -hmm. i guess and Mm -hmm. without even considering exactly what anime um the whole culture of anime and how much that um how much kind of historic weight it has you know in japan Mm -hmm which is why I kind of have to stop there because I don't, I can't speak for that because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just aware that it's way more complicated and complex than the people from the West present it as, yes. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just hoping that there will be more research and analyzed of through the lens of actual Japanese or Asian yeah, exactly. researchers that can look into that and expand the discussion of, not only based on the perspective of the Western ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, that um, just actually picked up from the photo of that piece of article from Mira. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is quite interesting because I didn't spot that. Um, you saw that the... There's uh, a, the a poster. Of, so basically yeah. there's a, uh, a little kind of poster sign in the front of the maid cafes, mm-hmm. um, uh, the wall, specifically the one in Manchester in the UK, uh, and it's titled Cafe Etiquette. Please read. Uh, let's go down the list. There's about 10 of them. Helen, let's go. Yes. Um, let's go. De- let's take turns of reading them out to our mm-hmm. listeners. The first one is no touching or asking to touch the maids. No asking the maids for personal information. Uh, no staying in the cafe for longer than I couldn't see that it's kind I think of two hours. yeah two hours unless you have been given permission by the maids the maids are not therapists please do not ask them how to solve your serious problems oh my god I love that <laughs> this one's also great do not discuss trauma slash mental illness with the maids if you need help they will push you in the right direction to find professional help um, do not linger in the shop or cafe waiting for the maids to talk to you. The maids are very busy. Please do not talk to them while they're making drinks or serving other other customers. 
Do not stand at, behind, or to the side of the till. And finally, do not stand in the doorway. <laughs> I do wonder, does this etiquette poster yeah. only appear yeah. in the Manchester shop or they do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Japanese original ones. It's Maybe the Japanese like, men already know. Yeah. Etiquette, you know, because that's their world, you know, like some, yeah. some, some men spend their whole lives um, through digital ethers and, you know, they clock in to virtual realities eight hours of the day, you know, like it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that that cafe etiquette maybe was just like drawn up to, um, to as a, as a guideline for those who are not familiar with anime etiquette. Mm-hmm. Or, or who couldn't separate the illusion. Yeah. And, and like, by the way, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And by the way, like, um, there are places, people who have called these spaces like incel, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And, and I, I guess, I guess like it's complicated because I, <laughs> because we're kind of negotiating and it's hard for me to negotiate this kind of these conflicting ideas because mm. again, I'm not sure about the culture of anime. It could be really toxic. Maybe it is. I don't know. So I'm not like defending it because I don't actually know the intricacies and the culture of anime. But like, I guess what Helen and I are negotiating right now on this pod is the, the defense of, I guess, Western feminists attacking a very specifically racialized and national and cultural um, pastime. Mm-hmm. you know a japanese yeah. pastime and that's what we're yeah. kind of negotiating here like uh, the very kind of entrenched notion and history of like western feminism um Im- implementing their own ideals onto a culture that they don't really understand or mm-hmm. don't understand the history and the intricacies of i think that's what we're trying to ne- deal with here right yeah and because you think about it um if you want to attack on a specific culture of what they do with a particular job that is mainly done by young women, uh-huh. you cannot overlook exactly. other it, works in yeah. Western country. Yeah. It, I think the, the article did mention Hooters. When Hooters first came out, <laughs> yeah. everyone's like, oh, you know, everyone's having this hoo-ha moment and then – no one really bit an eyelid saying that oh it's wrong it's all has been normalized and also there's um there's always been a culture of having you know some pubs running topless waitress i I don't know if it still happens but i i've I've, you know traveled through regional areas and i've seen Mm. signs outside of a pub saying that topless waitress on tuesday night or something like that so Mm. those are very gendered specific payments that are provided by women that is still happening and you know they happen in west you know a lot of western countries and you can't just say that because japan they have this mate cafe and it's very misogynistic you and backward have, you yeah, know backward. you really have such to separate an, yourself yeah. it's such an end of the day it's I, I feel personally it's entertainment. If someone yeah. invites me to go on it, I wouldn't mind because this seems so fun. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, that's what that's what that neo sign meant. Mm. Everything we do is driven by anime, which is another yeah. way of saying um this is all fun, guys. Yes. It's make believe. Um not to say that, you know, make believe is um is a space uh absent of politics. That's not really what we're saying. I guess we're saying like that is the we can still open up for their discussion. intention. Yeah. yeah, and I guess what what we're saying ultimately is that um, the best kind of feminism is the feminism that needs to be intersectional, and it mm-hmm. needs to take into account the historical elements of any issue. Yes, it comes to me as like in the past, I'll probably feel similar to what this right, this journalist was saying that oh, it's misogynistic. Yeah. yeah, it's you know, it's it's encouraging incels. But then the more I think about it, you have to consider that there are women, there are young women who have not granted the ability to learn other things, except for maybe they would 
I don't know how I'm. I don't know how to say this, but I don't want to know how to say this in a very non-offense, non-offensive way. But there are still women that are out there that have been brought up to pursue specific sort of career choices that is very gendered, and their、mm. personality is suited for that. And you can't deny、right. their right of choosing that kind of career. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that. That's a really important point. Yeah. Um, and we always have to take, you know, we always have to respect that. I think. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Okay, so that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple, and give us a five star rating. If you would like to support what we do here at Asian Bitches Down Under, head to Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. So that's it from us this week, and we'll chat to you next time. Bye.